Well, good morning and uh, greetings from Jefferson Park Baptist Church. Uh, as always, it's a joy to be with you. Uh, as we begin, let's go to the Lord in prayer. Father, we thank you so much for this day, uh, this Lord's Day, on which we can remember uh, our Lord and Savior's resurrection, the salvation that he has won for us. God, we thank you for the privilege we have of being able to gather as your people and worship you. Thank you, Lord, for your word. Thank you that you have spoken uh, so that we might know more of Christ and him crucified. God, we pray that uh, you would fix our gaze on the cross this morning. Oh God, I pray that you would be with me, that you would help me to uh, preach your word faithfully, that you would give understanding uh, to your people. It's in Jesus' name we pray, amen. Uh, now, as many, if not all of you know, uh, the, the past several times I've filled in for Justin, I've been preaching through 1 Corinthians, uh, and today we come to chapter 4. Uh, but before we read our text today, I'd like to take a moment and just remind you where we've been. Uh, so the Apostle Paul is writing this letter to the church in Corinth. Uh, Paul is probably writing this from Ephesus. Um, and he had established the, the Corinthian church just a few years before this. Uh, and, and then what inspires the letter is while Paul is in Ephesus, he has, uh, first he's received at least one letter from the Corinthians updating him on what's going on, asking him questions. Uh, and then second, he has received some visitors from the Corinthian church, specifically from Chloe's people. So these could be members of Chloe's household, these could be business associates of some kind. Um, but they have come to, to Paul and they've shared an update and, and told him some of what's going on. And so in the letter of 1 Corinthians, uh, Paul is responding to these issues and concerns, and in 1 Corinthians chapters 1 through 6, Paul is responding to the reports that he's heard from Chloe's people. And then in chapters 7 through 16, he's responding to the Corinthians letter itself. Uh, and, and there's a whole series of issues that Paul addresses, and the first issue, um, and probably the one that occupies the, the largest portion of the book, all the way from chapters 1 through 4, uh, is the issue of disunity. So if you look back quickly at chapter 1, verses uh, 10 through 12, you see that Paul begins this section by saying, I appeal to you, brothers, by the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, that all of you agree, and that there be no divisions among you, but that you be united in the same mind and the same judgment. For it has been reported to be by Chloe's people that there is quarreling among you, my brothers. What I mean is that each one of you says, I follow Paul, or I follow Apollos, or I follow Cephas, or I follow Christ. Uh, so there's division in the church, and the division is manifested in quarreling about which preacher they prefer. And as we've seen, there are some who are growing um, dissatisfied with Paul, um, and there's others who champion Apollos, and there's probably even other preachers that Paul doesn't mention uh, that they are flocking toward as well. Um, and, and we come to chapter 4, and this is really the conclusion of this section. Um, however, something that I, I mentioned in the past, and I want to reiterate, is, is just the big picture lens of how Paul deals with this issue of disunity. Uh, because elsewhere in the New Testament, Paul deals with this problem in other places. And he often stresses things like the need for humility, 
The need to bear with one another in love. The need to strive to maintain the unity of the Spirit and the bond of peace. Um, He's saying you need to show Christ-like character so that you get along. But it's noteworthy that Paul actually says nothing about that here. And I think that's because Paul traces the source of this disunity to something deeper. Uh, he, He traces it really to a failure on the part of the Corinthians to adequately understand the one thing that should unite them. The cross of Christ. And that's why the solution is not just you need to show more forbearance and forgiveness and learn to get along. The solution is that they need to come back to a Christ-centered view of reality, a Christ-centered view of the Christian life, a view that sees everything through the lens of the cross. Now, as we reflect on this, I want to introduce you to uh, some terminology and kind of borrow that terminology um, that was coined by Martin Luther during the Reformation. Uh, And Luther talked about something that he called a theology of glory over against what he called a theology of the cross. Now for Luther, the theology of glory was the theology of Rome. It was a theology that was consistent with all the wealth, prestige, and political power of the Roman church. But even more importantly, it was a theology that stressed being good. And doing acts of penance when you fail. Because the basic idea was that we need God's grace to make us good enough for heaven. And so God's power and His glory is displayed in the way that He pulls us out of suffering. And out of our weakness and failure and makes us strong and noble and righteous. But for Luther, the theology of the cross... Is the, the, is the true theology of the Bible, and it's different. It's a theology in which the visible and manifest things of God are comprehended not through glory and power, but through suffering and the cross. It's a theology in which God's ways are actually the reverse of what we'd expect. And so, for example, Luther said, He is not righteous who does much, but he who without work believes much in Christ. As Carl Truman summarizes, at the heart of Luther's theology of the cross was the notion that God reveals himself under his opposite. Or to express this another way, God achieves his intended purposes by doing the exact opposite of that which humans might expect. The supreme example of this is the cross itself. God triumphs over sin and evil by allowing sin and evil to triumph, apparently, over him. His real strength is demonstrated through apparent weakness. This was the way a theologian of the cross thought about God. The opposite to this was the theologian of glory. In simple terms, the theologian of glory assumed that there was basic continuity between the way the world is and the way God is. If strength is demonstrated through raw power on earth, then God's strength must be the same, only extended to infinity. To such a theologian, the cross is simply foolishness, a piece of nonsense. As Luther himself put it, the theologian of glory does not know God hidden in suffering. Therefore, 
He prefers works to suffering, glory to the cross, strength to weakness, wisdom to folly, and in general, good to evil. And I would suggest to you that when we turn to 1 Corinthians chapters 1-4, through that is a pretty good summary of the Corinthian church. I mean, they have imbibed a version of a theology of glory. It's not exactly the same as what we see in the Roman Catholic Church that Luther was talking about, but it is a theology of glory nonetheless. Um, it's, It's a theology in which they think God has saved us so that we might now turn around and impress the world with our wisdom, impress the world with our eloquence, impress the world with our strength and our might. And so they've become confident, even proud, of their power to reason, their power to judge. And so Paul spends these chapters trying to remind them that the way of Christ is the way of the cross. It's a way of suffering. It's a path of apparent folly, weakness, and shame. And so to borrow Luther's terminology, it's a theology of the cross where God is hidden in suffering. Listen again to some of the, the way, ways Luther talks about this, in, or sorry, Paul talks about this in the first couple chapters of 1 Corinthians. In chapter 1, verse 18, Paul writes, For the message of the cross is foolishness to those who are perishing, but to us who are being saved, it is the power of God. Chapter 1, verse 21, For since in the wisdom of God the world did not know God through wisdom, it pleased God through the folly of what we preach to save those who believe. For Jews demand signs and Greeks seek wisdom, but we preach Christ crucified, a stumbling block to Jews and folly to Gentiles, but to those who are called, both Jews and Greeks, Christ, the power of God and the wisdom of God. Chapter 1, verse 27, Paul says, but God chose what is foolish in the world to shame the wise. God chose what is weak in the world to shame the strong. God chose what is low and despised in the world, even things that are not to bring to nothing things that are, so that no human being might boast in the presence of God. Then finally in chapter 2, verses 1 and 2, Paul writes, When I came to you, brothers, I did not come proclaiming to you the testimony of God with lofty speech or wisdom. For I decided to know nothing among you except Jesus Christ and Him crucified. You see, Paul's trying to remind the Corinthians it's all about Christ and Him crucified. That is the lens through which we must understand who God really is and everything else about the Christian life. And so when we finally come today to 1 Corinthians 4, Paul is concluding this argument. And he's been urging them you need to return to a cross-centered view of reality. And now finally he comes to chapter 4 and what he's going to do is urge them to imitate him as he follows Christ. What he's trying to do is show you have been following the wrong people. You are going the wrong way. Now come back to me and walk in the true way of Christ and the cross. And so what we're going to see in this final section, Paul is going to try to get the Corinthians to do three things. Number one, stop judging me. That's verses 1-7. through seven. Number two, he's going to say, embrace the shame of the cross. That's verses 8 through 13. And number three, he is going to say, follow me. That's verses 14 through 21. So stop judging me. Embrace the shame of the cross. 
and follow me. So first, let's look at stop judging me. This is verses 1-7, through seven, and I will read that now. Paul writes, This is how one should regard us, as servants of Christ and stewards of the mysteries of God. Moreover, it is required of stewards that they be found trustworthy. But with me it is a very small thing that I should be judged by you or, any, or by any human court. In fact, I do not even judge myself, for I am not aware of anything against myself. But I am not thereby acquitted. It is the Lord who judges me. Therefore, do not pronounce judgment before the time, before the Lord comes, who will bring to light the things now hidden in darkness and will disclose the purposes of the heart. Then each one will receive his commendation from God. I have applied all these things to myself and Apollos for your benefit, brothers, that you may learn by us not to go beyond what is written, that none of you may be puffed up in favor of one against another. For who sees anything different in you? What do you have that you did not receive? If then you received it, why do you boast as if you did not receive it? Uh, now, I've already, as I've already said, um, and we see this in the earlier chapters as well, the Corinthians have begun judging Paul as too weak and unsophisticated to be a capable preacher. And so there's other preachers they're flocking to, uh, not only Apollos, whom Paul speaks of positively throughout, but as I said, probably other unnamed preachers whom Paul is concerned about. He mentions at the end of chapter 4, arrogant people. Um, now, what I want you to notice here is how Paul responds to this. He knows that they are judging him inadequate. So how does he respond? Well, first, he insists that he's finally accountable to God alone. He says in verse 1, this is how one should regard us. And the us there, I think, refers back to chapter 3, verse 22. Paul, Apollos, or Cephas, or any other true minister of the gospel. This is how one should regard us as servants of Christ and stewards of the mysteries of God. Moreover, it is required of stewards that they be found trustworthy. And so in other words, what Paul is saying is, I am a servant of Christ. And he has made me a steward of his gospel and he has called me to preach it to you. And therefore, it is my job to be found faithful and trustworthy to him. I'm his servant, not yours. Now, now to illustrate this, can you imagine you know, if I showed up at your place, of your office, and, and I start telling you why you're doing your job wrong and how you need to do it this way, and then you're not measuring up to my standards of how I think you need to do your job. Well, how would you respond? You would probably say, well, as a matter of fact, you are not my boss, and I have a boss who's told me how I'm supposed to do my job, and I am to be a steward and a servant of him and do what he wants. He's the one I'm accountable to, not you. And that's what Paul is reminding them. And that's why he says in verse 3, but with me it is a very small thing that I should be judged by you or by any human court. I'm a servant of Christ. He says, in fact, I do not even judge myself. For I'm not aware of anything against myself, but I'm not thereby acquitted. It is the Lord who judges me. Paul sees himself as finally and ultimately accountable to God alone. Now I want to take a moment and pause and consider this phrase. It is the Lord who judges me. And I want to do that because I think this is something we hear a lot uh, in our society today. Um, you know, how many times do we hear someone, you know, in response to some criticism, they say, how, don't judge me. 
Only God can judge me. You can see t-shirts where people will, will champion this. Um, well, I want to think about that. Is, is that. is that in line with what Paul is doing here? Well, I would argue that the similarity is superficial at best. Um, you know, have you ever noticed that when people say, only God can judge me, first of all, they often say it as if that's a more comforting thought than other people judging them. You know, it's almost as if, well, well, God knows my true heart that is so good and you people don't understand. Um, but in fact, I think usually when people say, don't judge me, it's, it's often because their conscience is already burdened by a twinge of guilt. Uh, they, they already know that, that what they're doing does not stand up to full scrutiny, and so they sort of use that as a shield because they, they want to avoid the light of scrutiny being shown on their life. But notice that with Paul, it's very different. He says in verse 4, I am not aware of anything against myself. So his conscience is clean. But then he says, but I am not thereby acquitted. So he's saying, even though my conscience is clean, I do not just assume that that means I'm acquitted because I am going to stand before God. And in fact, I, I think Paul would welcome others judging him in the sense of holding him accountable, in the sense of pointing things out so that he would be more aware of his own sin, of his own shortcomings. You know, Paul is not saying, I, I don't want anyone scrutinizing the way I'm conducting myself. Um, in fact, I think he would be grateful for that, and so should we. Uh, we should be people who invite criticism, who invite accountability because we want to please the Lord and we recognize that we sometimes don't see our own flaws, and so we need other people to help show us them. But here I think what's different is that Paul is not dismissing some legitimate charge of misconduct, immorality, or false teaching. Rather, he knows that the Corinthians are judging him because they've bought into this theology of glory, this worldly wisdom, and that they're judging him and his ministry by that human standard. And so Paul knows that by judging him, they're actually condemning themselves. And his point here is not because he's afraid of criticism. His point is he loves the Corinthians. And he's concerned for them because he knows that by judging him, they are being led astray. Now let's look at the second part of Paul's response to the Corinthians judging him. And that is that God, he, he reminds them that God doesn't judge like men. Look as he continues in verse 5. He says, Therefore, do not pronounce judgment before the time, before the Lord comes, who will bring to light the things now hidden in darkness and will disclose the purposes of the heart. Then each one will receive his commendation from God. Now Paul's reminding them that God doesn't judge like man because God doesn't see like man. Man looks on the outward appearance, but God looks at the heart. And Paul knows that each and every one of us will one day stand before the judgment seat of Christ, and he will bring to light the things now hidden in darkness and disclose the purposes of our hearts. And brethren, I think it is good for us to reflect on that, to, to think about the reality that we will stand before the one who can see into our hearts, who can see all that we've done, all that we've said, all that we've thought. 
You know, an illustration that's, that's been powerful in my life is just to consider, um, you know, what if someone had a video screen that could play my life for others to see? And how would I feel? Uh, to be honest, I would be terrified because I know that I have done things that I would be ashamed of. And, and then if that video screen could actually see within, I would be all the more afraid. Even though I know that all of you sitting in this room have also done things that you would be ashamed of and you have thought things you would be ashamed of and, and really you would not be right to stand in judgment over me because we're in the same boat. And yet I would still be afraid and yet on judgment day we will stand before the holy God who has never sinned, who is of eyes that are too pure than to look upon evil. And we will be judged by Him. And brothers and sisters, that's why we need Christ. That's why we should be so thankful that God in His mercy has sent Jesus to come and pay the price for our sins on the cross so that we can be fully and freely forgiven and have confidence on that day. But this is also why we should be so careful about how we judge others. Because as Jesus says, with the judgment we judge, we will be judged. And with the measure we use, it will be measured back to us. And as we look at others in the light of the cross, and as we think about the coming judgment in light of the cross, it means that the self-righteous Pharisee who prays and ties and fasts twice a week stands condemned before God. But the tax collector who cries out, God, be merciful to me, a sinner, is accepted and justified through the blood of Christ in God's sight. And this is why Paul warns the Corinthians and us, do not pronounce judgment before the time, before the Lord comes. In other words, he's saying humbly recognize that God alone has the wisdom and the authority to pronounce judgment in the end. Now, does this mean that we should never judge other people at all? Well, I think the answer to that is no. And in fact, if you look just one chapter ahead to chapter 5 and verse 3, you see Paul there is dealing with another situation where there's someone, a member of the Corinthian church, who is in this uh, adulterous affair with his father's wife. And listen to what Paul says in chapter 5, verse 3. He says, For though absent in body, I am present in spirit, and as if present, I have already pronounced judgment on the one who did such a thing. So in fact, not only has Paul pronounced judgment on them, but he's even rebuking the Corinthians for failing to judge this person and do something about it. And so what's the difference? How, how does Paul here in chapter 4 say, do not pronounce judgment before the time? And then in chapter 5, he says, I've already pronounced judgment. What is the difference? Well, I think the fundamental reason that Paul pronounces judgment is because he can look at that and judge it as sin by the Word of God. Whereas why are the Corinthians judging Paul and pronouncing judgment on him? They, they have raised no biblical issue with Paul's ministry. They're applying their own human standard. And that's the basis on which they're judging Paul. And so I think the point here is not that we should never judge, but it's that we should only judge based on God's Word. And this is where, again, this, this, this theology of the cross becomes so essential. Because think about it, when, when we look at Christ on the cross, 
Well, that is an example of the world's judgment of God. I mean, on the cross, the world is saying of God Himself, we judge you to be a criminal. I mean, that is how erroneous human judgment can be. And so through the cross, all our wisdom was exposed as foolishness. And in light of the cross, we should be humble and we should judge according to God's Word alone and no further. And so friends, this is a reminder to us um, we should not hold our opinions up as the basis on which we judge others. We judge others by Scripture and Scripture alone. Uh, or, or to be even more specific, think of how you as a church view Justin as your pastor. What standard do you hold him to? Well, hold him to the standard of God's Word because that's what God says. But be very careful about holding him to the standard of what you think a pastor should be. Because once you do that, you have left the boundaries of God's Word and the authority um, of what God says. Now, a third and final part of Paul's response to the Corinthians judging him. Um, so, he has <clears throat> he's told them already um, that <clears throat> he is finally accountable to God alone. Um, he's, he's told them God does not judge like a man. And then thirdly, he says, you're really judging yourselves. Um, in other words, by judging him, the Corinthians are not actually revealing Paul's faults, but their own pride. Look, look at verse 6. Paul says, I have applied all these things to myself and Apollos for your benefit, brothers, that you may learn by us not to go beyond what is written, that none of you may be puffed up in favor of one against another. So in other words, by judging Paul, what they're really doing is they're puffing themselves up as they are in favor of one, maybe Apollos or some other preacher, over against another like Paul. Uh, they're arrogating to themselves the position of judge over God's servants. And of course, as Paul explained in chapter 3, uh, God is actually using both Apollos and Paul in perfect harmony for the Corinthians' good. But instead of appreciating that, they're, they're going beyond what is written, Paul says. Um, and, and this is a tricky phrase, but I think what Paul means is they're going beyond the general tenor of the Old Testament, especially as summarized by the verses of the Old Testament Paul has already quoted in this letter. Um, and it's well summarized by, let the one who boasts, boast in the Lord. But instead of boasting in the Lord, they're boasting in men and boasting in themselves. And that's why Paul continues in verse 7. He says, For who sees anything different in you? Uh, what do you have that you did not receive? If then you received it, why do you boast as if you did not receive it? So he's, who sees anything different in you? This could also be maybe better translated, what distinguishes you? What makes you special? Who do you think you are? What makes you superior to other Christians? Do you not realize that the most important thing about you as a Christian is what you share in common with all other Christians? And then when he says, what do you have that you did not receive? Um, he, he's reminding them everything they have. Salvation, gifts, life. It's a gift of God. So how dare you use it as a reason for boasting? And so you see, the problem here is pride. And when we judge others without 
or beyond what the Word of God says, then we're arrogating to ourselves a position and authority that we don't have. And we're denying the cross that should humble us to the dust. That should be a constant reminder to us that we are all equal at the foot of the cross. That we are all sinners, deserving hell and in need of grace. And reminding us that our wisdom has come to nothing. Because on Calvary, the world judged God Himself to be a criminal. um, And God exposed the folly of all human wisdoms because through the folly of God, His wisdom is displayed in salvation. And so may we be a humble people. May we see all of life through the lens of the cross and repent of judgmental attitudes that really reveal more about our pride than others' flaws. Now second, so, so first point here, Paul says, stop judging me. Second, in verses 8-13, through 13, Paul appeals to the Corinthians to embrace the shame of the cross. Listen as I read that section. Paul remarks, already you have all you want. Already you have become rich. Without us you have become kings. And would that you did reign so that we might share the rule with you. For I think that God has exhibited us apostles as last of all. Like men sentenced to death because we have become a spectacle to the world, to angels and to men. We are fools for Christ's sake, but you are wise in Christ. We are weak, but you are strong. You are held in honor, but we in disrepute. To the present hour, we hunger and thirst. We are poorly dressed and buffeted and homeless. And we labor working with our own hands. When reviled, we bless. When persecuted, we endure. When slandered, we entreat. We have become and are still like the scum of the world, the refuse of all things. Now in this section, Paul paints a stark contrast between the way he is living as an apostle of Christ and the way the Corinthians are living as professing Christians. And much of the language is rich in sarcasm as Paul is seeking to show how inconsistent and inappropriate the Corinthians' behavior really is. Look at verse 8. He says, Already you have all you want? Already you have become rich? Without us you have become kings? And the sarcasm is clear because he continues, And would that you did reign so that we might share the rule with you. In other words, he's saying, I wish you really reigned, but you don't. And yet Paul's point is that the Corinthians are living as if they reigned. As if they were rich. As if they had it all. As if they were the kings of the earth. And then when Paul says, I wish you reigned because I'd reign with you, I think he means, well, when you really reign, that's when Christ comes back. And then I will reign too. And I am looking forward to that day. Right? You Corinthians are living as if the end were already here. As if Christ had already returned. And as if you had, revi- had already arrived. But Paul says, that's news to me. Because look at how I'm living. Verse 9, For I think that God has exhibited us apostles as last of all, like men sentenced to death, because we have become a spectacle to the world, to angels, and to men. Now the metaphor Paul is using here is that of the arena. Uh, And so as, as people were brought into the arena, like the Colosseum, there would be this great procession. And then all the way at the very back of the line 
where those that everyone knew were sentenced to die. Those who would be the spectacle that all the crowds would come out to watch their shameful death. And Paul says, it's as if God has exhibited us apostles as last of all, like men sentenced to death. And we are that spectacle to the world, to angels and to men. And so he continues, verse 10, we are fools for Christ's sake. We are the laughingstock of the world, preaching a message that the world regards as utter folly. But you are wise in Christ. He says, we are weak. You know, Paul mentions in the beginning of chapter 2 that he preached in weakness and trembling and fear. But you Corinthians are strong. You are held in honor, but we in disrepute. He says, to the present hour we hunger and thirst. We are poorly dressed and buffeted and homeless. And we labor, working with our own hands. You know, remarkably, from the Corinthians' perspective, um, it was pathetic that Paul as an apostle would actually work for his own sustenance. In 2 Corinthians chapter 11, Paul has to say to them, was it a sin for me to lower myself in order to elevate you by preaching the gospel of God to you free of charge? I mean, that's one of the things. They look, well, he's, he's not even charging money. He must not be a great preacher. I mean, that, that's their perspective. That this is, you know, just shameful that, that Paul, a mighty apostle, would be so low to work with his own hands. And yet Paul says, that is what I do for the honor of Christ. He continues, when reviled, we bless. When persecuted, we endure. When slandered, we entreat. We have become and are still like the scum of the world, the refuse of all things. I mean, so far from defending his own honor and his own reputation, he humbly, you could even say slavishly, seeks the good of others. To the point that the very people who revile him, he blesses. Who persecutes him, he endures with. Who slander him, he prays for. That is how slavishly and humbly Paul is responding in love rather than seeking his own honor. And yet in the process of all of this, they are cast aside as scum and refuse of the world. And now friends, here's the question. Here's the thing Paul is driving at in the end. Here's what he wants the Corinthians to see. Which of these two ways of life better reflects the way of Christ? Paul or the Corinthians? Which path accords with true discipleship of the one who said, he who would come after me, let him take up his cross daily and follow me. And whoever would seek to save his life will lose it. But whoever loses his life for my sake will save it. When you see how far the Corinthians have strayed from a cross-centered life. Rather than embracing the shame of the cross, they're seeking the fame of the world. Rather than embracing suffering, they're seeking comfort. And rather than living in light of the fact that we await Christ's return, they're living as if the new creation had already come. And so in summary, they have imbibed this theology of glory and rejected the theology of the cross. And so brothers and sisters, what about us? How are you embracing the shame and suffering of the cross? 
Or are there ways that you're clinging to comfort and honor in the eyes of the world? You know, especially as the general attitude toward Christianity sours in our culture, how will we respond? Will we stand boldly for biblical truth, even when it means losing position or influence or reputation? Even when and if it means losing business or even losing your job? How will we respond to our enemies? Will we seek to respond to them in a way that would uphold our honor and defend our sense of rights and reputation and integrity? Or when reviled, will we bless? When persecuted, will we endure? When slandered, will we entreat? What about in our evangelism? Will we lovingly and boldly share Christ with every opportunity? Or will we be ashamed of the gospel, fearing what others think more than of the glory of Christ Himself? What about in our giving, in our lifestyle? What will we prioritize? Will we seek our comfort first and only then consider giving to the cause of missions and to those who are needy? Or will we take up our our cross by giving sacrificially? What about in the way we serve? Are we willing to take a low station in life and condescend to the position of a slave even washing others' feet? Or do we look at some tasks below us? And finally, what about the way that we will love one another um, even here in this church? You know, because even within the body of Christ, there will be times when we get hurt. You really can't open yourself up to deep relationships with other sinners and not get hurt. I mean, even other sheep bite, they kick, they go astray. But it really comes down, am I going to prioritize my comfort and only love if I feel like I'm going to get something in return? Or do we see loving Christ's people as part of following Christ? who died for his people. And therefore, even when it hurts, even when it is painful, we are going to do it for Christ's sake. And so brethren, we must remember that we are called to take up our cross daily and follow Christ. The call to discipleship is a call to die. And it's especially a call to die to our own pride. To die for, to our yearning for the honor and esteem of the world and to embrace the shame of the cross instead. And so Paul has told the Corinthians, stop judging me and embrace the shame of the cross. And then finally, he says, follow me. Imitate me. Look at verses 14 through 21. Paul concludes, I do not write these things to make you ashamed, but to admonish you as my beloved children. For though you have countless guides in Christ, you do not have many fathers. For I became your father in Christ Jesus through the gospel. I urge you then, be imitators of me. That is why I sent you Timothy, my beloved and faithful child in the Lord, to remind you of my ways in Christ, as I teach them everywhere in every church. Some are arrogant, as though I were not coming to you. But I will come to you soon, if the Lord wills. And I will find out not the talk of these arrogant people, but their power. For the kingdom of God does not consist in talk, but in power. What do you wish? Shall I come to you with a rod, or with love, in a spirit 
of gentleness. So here in this last section, Paul brings this this whole section, spanning back to chapter 1, to a conclusion with a final plea. And in verse 16, he sums it up, Well, I urge you then, be imitators of me. He sees the Corinthians being allured by other influences, and he, out of fatherly love for them, pleads with them to come back to him. And he gives two basic reasons why. First, he reminds them that he is their spiritual father. That is, he is the one through whom they came to faith. So he's the one who loves them as a father, who has the right to admonish them as a father, and the one who sets an example for them to follow as a father. And then number two, he insists that these arrogant people, these others who are influencing them, are full of talk, but lack the true power of the kingdom of God. So let's briefly walk through this together. In verse 14, Paul says, I do not write these things to make you ashamed, but to admonish you as my beloved children. Now, of course, they really should be ashamed, but that's not Paul's purpose. As a loving spiritual father, he said this for their correction and their good. He continues in verse 15, For though you have countless guides in Christ, you do not have many fathers. For I became your father in Christ through the gospel. That's one thing that sets Paul apart from all these other teachers. Only Paul was the one through whom they first came to believe. Verse 16, I urge you then, be imitators of me. Just as a child should imitate his dad, Paul is saying, you should imitate me. Verse 17, that is why I sent you Timothy, my beloved and faithful child in the Lord, to remind you of my ways in Christ. Now this is striking. I mean, Paul believes that you know, he's, I've sent you Timothy, and if you're just around him, you'll remember what I'm like. Paul has such a discipling relationship with Timothy that it's like Paul's very life has been imprinted on Timothy, and if you're around Timothy, you know what Paul's like. What a picture of discipleship. And yet in verse 18 and 19, Paul continues, Some are arrogant, as though I were not coming to you. But I will come to you soon, if the Lord wills, and I will find out not the talk of these arrogant people, but their power. And so it seems that some were insinuating that Paul had sent Timothy because Paul was too cowardly to come himself. But Paul responds, I will come when the Lord wills, and we will see where the real power lies. For, as he says in verse 20, the kingdom of God does not consist in talk, but in power. You see, what Paul is saying is that he's not coming with mere rhetoric. He's not coming with mere arguments or philosophy or eloquence. He's not coming to compete with these Corinthian rhetoricians on their terms. He says, I'm coming with the very power of God manifest by the Spirit of God through the Gospel of God to establish the kingdom of God. I mean, this is the power that was evidenced when Paul showed up in Corinth the first time and through his weakness, through his pitiful preaching by Corinthian standards. Yet, lives were transformed. Yet, the, the folly of the gospel went forth and people were saved. This is the power that doesn't just change the way people think. This is the power that changes lives, that produces real fruit of holiness and love. See, Paul knows that he has a power that none of these arrogant people 
share. Because Paul alone is preaching the truth of God in Jesus Christ. And by the way, have you noticed that, I mean, throughout the New Testament, you never read about false teachers starting their own churches. You know, nobody wants to convert to some persecuted group. I mean, they don't do that. Where, where do the false teachers come in? They come into the churches Paul starts. Or the other apostles start, and then they start stirring up trouble. And they use their talk to get people to follow them. There's talk that's empty, that lacks power. And so that's why Paul says finally in verse 21, What do you wish? Shall I come to you with a rod or with love and a spirit of gentleness? You know, Paul is saying that he will come with the authority of an apostle, with the power of the gospel, and he is prepared to publicly confront and rebuke these arrogant people, to expose them for what they are, and to put them out of the church unless they repent. And so Paul's point here is ultimately that the Corinthians must return to the theology of the cross, or they will cease to be a church at all. There can be no unity if they will not be united in the theology of the cross, and that's why they need to come back to Paul and leave these arrogant people. Now, I think a key question here for us is, who are we following or imitating? You know, we all need not just teaching, um, but we need examples. We, we need disciples. We need people in our life that we can look to as a model who are living it out. We need those like Paul and like Timothy who are walking not in the way of the world, but in the true way of the cross who are embracing the shame of the cross and reflecting the love of Christ. We need disciples that aren't just full of talk, but through whom the power of the kingdom is evident. You know, the power where they are now walking the walk and we can imitate them. So who are we imitating? But then I think also we should ask the question, are we being the kind of disciplers that Paul is here and Timothy was? Um, like Paul, can you tell someone who wants to follow Christ, I urge you then, be an imitator of me. Now, are we living a life worth imitating? Uh, this is the high calling that we have as Christians. Uh, we are to be growing up into maturity in Christ so that others can imitate us and we can be disciplers. And to do that, we need to present ourselves like Paul to Timothy in such a way that, that their life can actually be imprinted by us. Not just seeing them every now and then and saying, you know, there's many guides in Christ, but may we have that kind of fatherly affection where we love others and give ourselves in such a way they can grow up and, and learn to follow Christ even as we do. Um, this is the high calling we have as parents toward children, as older men toward younger men, as older women toward younger women, as pastors toward sheep. Um, and to some degree, every one of us is a Christian toward those who are outside of Christ. Uh, and so, may this spur us on to, to live a life worth imitating. Well, we should conclude. So what is the main point here? Well, Paul's telling the Corinthians, number one, stop judging me. Number two, embrace the shame of the cross. And number three, follow me. And he does that because he knows they've imbibed a worldly wisdom a crossless Christianity, and a theology of glory. And so Paul is striving to refocus them on Christ and Him crucified and on the true theology of the cross. 
A theology in which God does not reveal Himself through outward power or wisdom or glory, but in which God is hidden in suffering. You see, the world looks at Jesus on the cross and thinks, well, there's the proof He was a fraud. You know, if He was the Son of God, He'd come down from the cross. But we see Jesus on the cross and see the proof that He's exactly who He claimed to be. The world looks at the cross and sees Jesus' weakness. But for us, it displays His power. The world sees the cross as shame and ruin. But we see Jesus dying on the cross as the greatest revelation of His glory. The world sees the cross as failure. But for us, it is the place of victory. And so, brothers and sisters, as we, wait, as we await our Lord's return, let us keep our eyes fixed on the cross and take up our cross and follow Christ. Amen. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your word. We pray that you would help us to indeed fix our eyes on Christ and his cross and to take up our cross and follow him. Help us to repent of uh, proud judgments that are based on our own opinions and not your word. Help us to learn to embrace the shame of the cross. God, teach us how to find the right people to follow and help us to be people who, are worth, who live lives worth imitating as we follow Christ, that we may grow up into maturity in Christ together. God, we pray this in Jesus' name and for His glory. Amen.